Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. We're joined by our panel to discuss some of the issues of interest and stories in this morning's newspaper. On one side of the table is an author, a former deputy editor of BBC's Newsnight and an editor here at News Talk in its formative days. He also trained as a neuroscientist, behavioural economist, which is a fancy title for someone who can explain just why you're as greedy as you think you are. So, fresh from his nerd lab at the ESRI, Pete Lunn, one of the all-time talkers, are you ready for the next campaign. <laughs> Good morning, Ivan. It's a pleasure as always. I don't know which of those five barbs to tackle <laughs> first. But, of course, I mean, what's happening in the Pro 14 for Leinster is very exciting with the, the South African teams coming in. So it's going to be a different year altogether. Yeah. As you can take it, Pete and I are related to a drink at the RDS following Leinster's woes. Beside him is someone who's profiled herself in this morning's big interview in the Sunday Business Post. She is, of course, one of Ireland's top business women. 11890 directory inquiries she founded and is now all sorts of savvy social media uh, companies and services. Only last month she became president of the Irish Exporters Association. Nicola Byrne, you're most welcome, as busy as ever. Oh yes, and there's just no stopping. Good, that's what we, that's what we want to hear. And finally, uh, we're joined by uh, a man who is actually making the lead of the Sunday Independent himself today. You'll know him, of course, as former political correspondent of RTE News. He's had a front row seat at the main political events on the island, both north and south, over the last few decades. Known to his friends as DDP, David Davin Power, you're most welcome. There is life after RTE. There certainly is. I'm here to to, to demonstrate it. <laughs> OK, let me just f- scan through the front pages of the lead stories in all the Sunday papers. The Sunday Independent goes with Bradcar Plot's spring election. Taoiseach sets up war council to prepare for poll. When I wrote that three months ago, everyone <laughs> said it was ridiculous. The Sunday Business Post revealed the new plan to save small time and accidental landlords. Apparently, there's a working group on the house rental sector and they're looking at various tax initiatives uh, in relation to, uh, say, non-professional landlords. The Sunday Times has an interesting story. In the fallout of the Jobstown case, they have another case. Gardee threatened to arrest for arrest for online posts during trial. Judge orders action over social media comments that is concurrent uh, with a trial. Uh, the Sunday Times also has an editorial, which I'll come to later, about the Kevin Myers inc- incident. Um, the Irish Mail on Sunday leads with drugs firm secret 4.2 million to doctors. This includes doctors and hospital consultants who are apparently secretly pocketing millions in payments from pharmaceutical firms uh, but not going public on it. And finally, the Sunday World, a story, an exclusive story about Harry Arter, Ireland's midfield soccer player. I played an international match at Aviva while on the brink of mental collapse. That and lots more. Let's go back to the Sunday Independent and start with their strap lead. David Davenpower says racial diversity, the real problem at RTE. David, you you penned a piece in relation to the controversy about the difference in pay uh, between Brian Dobbo Dobson and Sharon Neviolon. Basically, you made a, a fundamental factual point, which I think no one else has made, that Dobbo's role actually goes beyond the 6-1. He is the go-to man, centenary celebrations, uh, election count as the anchor guy, and therefore he's worth every penny, you say? Well, that's not to denigrate Sharon. They're both colleagues of mine for many years. Uh, But it it is a fact that Dobson has a, a wider remit on RTE. And I suppose I was making the point that I thought that the controversy about gender pay inequality was a little bit contrived on that very narrow basis. Now, uh, your big interview guest, uh, Kieran Mulvey, is looking into this whole thing in a a kind of a broad way. Uh, I'd be astonished if he found that there was any uh, um, fundamental and... uh, 
overt policy in RTE to pay uh, women less. I think women have, I made the point in the article, uh, women have rightly done well in RTE. There's not a great deal of evidence of, of gender-based discrimination. Well, uh, according to Martina Fitzgerald, your former colleague, that's not so. She uh, has been to the forefront in saying there is discrimination. It's demoralising for those women well, I don't working think in the organisation. I, I hesitate to contradict you, but I don't think she actually said that, Ivan. I think that the, the idea of... Uh, you think she's happy? Uh, well, I think she wants clarity, is what Marty, I mean, we all want clarity, and isn't that what uh, Kieran Mulvey is there to provide? Uh, but look, I, I made the point, which is rather overdone in the headline, that you know there are other problems in RTE, uh, and I highlighted the fact that uh, lip service has been paid for years to the notion of having more racial diversity on, on air, and nothing has happened. I mean, Leo Varadkar made the point that 17% of the population of this country was born outside of Ireland. 800,000 people living here now, but you wouldn't know to look, on RTE, look at RTE. That's the point I was making. I, say, I, I, I wasn't. The headline says racial diversity the real problem. What I said was there are uh, there are other problems, and perhaps gender pay inequality isn't really at the top of the list. Well, uh, but David, <laughs> me thinks me thinks you're brown nosing RTE a little bit here. Now that you've got the freedom to say what you you really think, if you pick up, for example. Uh, Stephen Kinsler, who is a renowned economist on page 14 of the Sunday Business Post. They're always he, renowned when they, you agree with them. <laughs> <laughs> Touché. Um, the, but the, the, the point being, he says, look, it's a 14% pay gap uh, and, and all the rest of it. I, 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 and you also make the point that other media broadcast organisations are cold houses for women by comparison to RT. So I'll put it like this. And, you know, Miriam and Claire and Marion's forefront role, I, I, I think it has been overstated, the case against RT. But is there not a more serious issue here that maybe at research level and production level and so on, that maybe women don't get a fair deal in the media? Uh I think it can be a difficult place for women, but I think women do better in broadcasting than they do in the print media. We all know of high-profile cases uh, of women in the media who have not been well treated in this town. Uh, but uh, as I say, uh, in fairness to RTE, uh, it has been my experience, that's all I can talk about, uh, that uh, capable women, of which there are many in RTE, have not seen any particular impediment to their careers. Now, in broadcasting and in the media, generally everybody grumbles. And everybody says, uh, I'm undervalued, perhaps I'm underpaid. Women as well as men, men as well as women. I'm just saying that uh, I, I don't think that, that Kieran Mulvey will find that there is a coherent strategy in RTE to pay women less. That's all I'm saying. OK. Nicola, um, what's, what's your take on this whole row? Uh, is there some opportunism by certain women who are looking for a pay rise? Or, or would you go, would you go, would you go with Stephen Kinsler's clinical point? which is actually there is a 14% pay gap and it's unfair and also it's great it's only 14% okay (laughs) it's a good start and I think it will improve and I think things will change but the problem is in RTE's case and in News Talk's case and in every media outlet women are nearly silent and women on air and their voices and if you look at the amount of airtime and the amount of amount of hours even in movies everything throughout Hollywood our whole society um, in first world culture is to make women a minority. And so it's kind of a, an amazing achievement to get it to 14% of a gap. Because um, even in 2017, I am shocked by the treatment of women in media, not just their depiction. I'm not even sure women themselves know what they want to be. But I do agree that our voices need to be heard and we need to step up. And, it's and where is the greatest area of discrimination? Is it that it, women aren't in the top jobs or what? No, it's not that we're not in the top jobs. Some people don't want the top jobs. They don't want the stress. They want life balance. Uh, it was interesting in The Economist last week that Ireland, and I know I'm going left to field on you, but it's kind of important. Ireland in the map of the world has uh, 2.2 children per woman, but we also have the highest rate of childlessness women. And those women are now 28, 29. They're starting to come through. And they may remain childless, which will change the face of our working environment for the future. Because in the past, women weren't childless. Somebody had to mind them. I have three. It's really difficult. And the reality is I can't be everywhere and be all things to all people. You have to make choices. And sometimes my choices is the children first. And I say no to everything I possibly can because I have to spend time with the kids. And I love it and I want to. But in reality, I need to live. I need to feed myself and I need to pay myself. In RTE, the problem isn't picking on RTE, it's not picking on the BBC. The problem is, it's just the amount of airtime physical women's voices get on air. It was a big deal that Kira Kelly did, but 
Bobby Kerr's show this morning. It's all like, you know, from the ladies I follow on Twitter, it is fantastic to see a female coming into place. It's rare and it's unheard of. And our kids have accepted that men's voices dominate. In movies, they've accepted it in everything in life. In sport, men dominate. You've just accepted that as a woman, you're going to be second place. And it is a hard battle. We're not going to win it by taking it on. We're going to take it on dip- diplomatically and the changing global economy is going to change it because if these women are childless, they're going to be able to focus and fight for things different to women like me and chose to have kids. But, but, but surely the greatest area of inequality is women directors in, in the boardroom, Absolutely. women CEOs, much more so than in media. It's all changing. Startups are now primarily female. And the women raising money are being more successful than the men raising money, but they're still raising it at a lesser proportion than the men. So we're not going to see an overnight change. We're not all going to take the streets and demand 50-50. But in the next 20 years, I think you'll be looking at a very different Ireland. And I think the diversity is going to play a huge part. But like I grew up, there was never any coloured skin anywhere in my whole life. I played basketball and black people arriving at the door to pick me up for matches was a shock to my neighbours, genuinely. At 16, my mother gave me a belt over the head saying that, why are these three black men coming to pick you up in a car? And it was like, you know, they were all six foot four American basketball players. But it just wasn't done. I now have a niece who's half caste and uh, I went on holidays with her and everything's changed. I never foresaw Catholic Ireland being what it is now. And I think we're going to change it ginormously. The next generation won't look like this generation. OK, Pete, you've studied this topic, uh, both in the SRI and BBC. What, what, what are the facts of the matter? OK, so you're not wrong. I want to applaud a lot of what Nicholas just said. I thought it was excellent. Apologies for an outbreak of agreement in your studio. Okay, it Ivan, won't be forgiven, but, well, I can tell you. No, no, no I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you will do everything you can to address the balance okay, shortly. But, OK, uh, Yeah, I mean, there are some simple facts here. I mean, RTE is not an unusual organisation in this regard. Uh, Stephen Kinsler's point in the Sunday Business Post is correct. The gender pay gap exists across the Irish economy. Ireland is not unusual in this regard. The gender pay gap exists across the European economy. You can do what scientists do, which is you can try and explain it. So you control for things. Uh, you control for what occupation people have. You control for their level of education. You control for what sector they're in. You're trying to compare like with like. You control for their tenure within the organisation, how many times they've dipped in and out of work, so have there been breaks in their career. You can do all of that. And when you do all of that, you find there is an unexplained gender pay gap that you can't explain through any of those things that's usually oh, no. about 10 to 15%. Okay, but surely it's very explicable. Uh, Coming out of college, there is equality. Up to the point of what Nicola alluded to, the babies becomes the issue. The primary parenting Mm. role. So therefore maybe... The, the mother takes time out and she loses her place in the career okay. ladder. Surely that is that is a fundamental, explicable reason. It's just not nastiness towards women. So, no, no, no. So, Ivan, time out makes a difference, right? But it only makes part of the difference. And if you control for time out and compare like with like, there's still a gender pay gap and it's at least, 10, and, yeah, and it's at least 10%. So the question is, what is causing it? And if you hear people try and tell you that there is a simple answer to that question, they are wrong. And the reason I can tell you they are wrong is because there are an entire group of social scientists throughout the world who've been wrestling with this problem for 20, 25 years trying to understand why anti-discrimination and equal pay legislation has failed to get the gender, ga- gender is, pay gap is lower there a, Is 10%. there a blagging issue? Because I've heard women say oh my god, I wouldn't go forward for that job I wouldn't have to go, whereas the men say I haven't a clue but I'll, yeah, I'll, see, I'll all, blag it and I'll take a chance. Women here, are better one bluffers of, One of the problems here is we always want to get oh, it. I've been getting we away always with it. Want, well indeed. <laughs> we always want <laughs> to get it down to the individual's behaviour and say, well, look, if only women did this or if women did that, and that probably is nothing to do with it. One of the things that is almost certainly something to do with it is discrimination. And one of the ways we know that scientifically is what's called correspondence testing. That is, you fire off exactly matched equivalent CVs and candidates to real companies in a field experiment and you see what offers come back. And if you do that, you will discover that women are less likely to be called to interview than men in most studies. That effect is nowhere near as big, incidentally, as it is for ethnic minorities. Right? If you have have a non-Irish name, I know because I was one of the team that did this experiment, if you have a non-Irish name in the Irish economy and you fire off a CV for a job, you're about half as likely to get called for interviews if you have an Irish name. But that effect, that method, that scientific method, a very good way of testing whether there's discrimination in a labour market and there is discrimination against women. That is part of the story. One of the other hypotheses that I think is interesting and should get explored a little bit is this. You have a certain amount of negotiating power with an employer. 
If you put your primary effort into negotiating position and wages, you will probably do better than if possibly some of that effort goes into negotiating flexibility. And that's possibly one of the issues that's here. The way you have that degree of credit and capital in your negotiations with with your employer, if you put it into negotiating flexibility, you will probably lose out in terms of how much effort you can put into negotiating position and pay. This all started out with RTE, and uh, Nicola was, I think, suggesting that there's a good deal of discrimination. I can only talk with the news and current affairs. Well, we know there's a a, a woman director general. We know that. The number two in news and current affairs is a woman. Uh, The two of the three managing editors in news who run the news bulletins on radio and TV. The point is the airtime. The point is. Well, okay, I'll just say, I'll read out a couple of names. Sharon Lee Yolan, Rachel English, Audrey Carville, Anya Lawler, Mary Wilson. I would say there are plenty of times in in news terms that there are more female voices on the main bulletins than male voices. And when you look at it across the full week. Women well, only account for 30%, less than 30%, sometimes only 15% in a week of a female voice actually being broadcast in peak hours. There's no point putting in and telling me that you gave the girl the Saturday well, show I'm not saying that. from 12 well, to one. What I'm but saying to you is in the, the key audience, area of news and current affairs, female voices are at least 50% if not dominant. It's okay, changing. And I, I feel there's nothing wrong with a male voice on air. <laughs> now, I want to turn to the other tangent to this story, which is Kevin Myers. The Sunday Times has a brief editorial at the bottom, overstepping the mark. Last weekend, we published a column about BBC's presenters' pay, which included unacceptable comments that caused offence to many, in particular to the Jewish community. We removed the article and apologised promptly to Claudia Winkleman and Vanessa Feltz, who had been named in the column. Now we apologise to our readers. Newspapers publish controversial articles that often cause upset. It's important to generate forthright debate about issues affecting our lives. And it concludes with, it's It's also important, however, not to publish comments that overstep the mark where this column did so. We are deeply sorry. No reference to, one, the termination of Kevin Meyer's uh, column and no reference to whether other people, editors, had given approval to it and share some culpability if it was such a horrendous thing to publish. What's your whole take on this, David, first of all, in terms of was Meyer's thrown to the wolves Correctly or not, or what? It reminds me of what happened to my good friend Michael O'Kane when, when he was the editor of the Irish Daily Star. He published uh, topless photos, if I remember correctly, uh, snatched by a paparazzi of one some minor British royals. Wouldn't, it didn't really cause much of a stir here, but it caused a furore in London where the part owner of the, uh, the star uh, went ballistic and... Um, Poor Michael, um, now happily, happily reinstated as the news editor at RT, uh, paid with his job. I think these comments would have caused a stir, but would not have co- uh, would not have cost Myers's head had they been published in the Irish Times uh, or the Sunday Independent. I think that what happened was uh, it was picked up in London, uh, where uh, any suggestion of anti-Semitism, however unfounded, is a neuralgic. Uh, issue in the media. Uh, I think that something like wh- wh- what Myers wrote read very differently in Hampstead uh, than in, in Dublin is what I, I, I'm trying to say. And he paid the price. Uh, it, I, I can't understand how it wasn't picked up in the editorial process. Uh, is the culpability shared like any column I ever wrote had to be tweaked and edited and approved? Well, I mean, if, if, if yeah, if you're, if you're, if you're, you're hard to do with my writing. <laughs> <you're>, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're, back to your system. If I was your editor, I'd be tweaking away. Yeah, I mean, Myers earns his corn by being controversial. Uh, the the, uh, the flip side of that is that he has to be policed, and uh, the policing process didn't work very well, to put it to, to put it mildly. Do you think anyone else should be sacked? Oh, I would. I, look, there's no point in calling for people's heads. Um, Why not? It's great sport. <laughs> it is good sport. But uh, well, look, everyone's entitled to mistakes. Well, everyone's okay. entitled to mistakes. Okay. Uh, but unfortunately, in the world of the media, if uh, like Frank Fitzgibbon, you're well known for being able to give it out, you got to take it the odd time. And look, he has apologised himself. Uh, it was a lapse. Uh, but as I say, I think uh, it was a lapse that caused more ripples in London than it did in Dublin. N- Nicola, do you think it's right that Kevin Mars? Is- is not writing this Sunday in the Sunday Times. Uh, Kevin's a friend and has been a friend for a long time. We shared a board together many years ago and uh, and he's become a good friend. Uh, I love his company. I love his outlook. I love the education. I love the history. Um, I'm dreadful on history. Um, and the funniest thing is I was on holidays glamping for a week with the kids so I didn't know about all this until well after it all happened. And uh, I came home on the boat I've been watching a tweet stream 
and I realised on Twitter that I don't not sure that the social media that all this news and things I'm not sure ordinary people on the street care mm. um, I don't think you're they here. give a damn and I think the problem is the people who like to hear themselves and think they're influencers and thought leaders in this country are really up their own bums and I think that I didn't even understand the article I had to read it about five times and my question was and my question was do you think that he's, it's right that he's not writing this Sunday no I think it was hasty I think that everybody's entitled to mistake I think the fact got it through the system I think in hindsight, you wouldn't have done it like that. But I think the problem is that media editors, editors are just as susceptible to reading social media as anybody else. And I think the problem on social media is it doesn't lend to any balance. It doesn't lend any common sense. It doesn't have any distinguishable features of intelligence. It's emotional. It's reactive. And I think everybody's wrong in it. Um, Pete, you've experience as editing, editing role. Um, do you think there's culpability beyond, Kevin? Um, there's certainly been mistakes made beyond Kevin, but without knowing any of the detail, you can't possibly know who's made them or what an appropriate sanction might be. I mean, what I would say is this. I mean, I always think it's a bit sad when somebody who at one time is a really good journalist ends up substituting what really is kind of witty but ill-informed generalisations for proper journalism. And to be honest, I think Kevin Myers has had it coming to him for years because he's been pushing those boundaries and he's been writing less and less research stuff and more and more opinion pieces that, that, that depend upon that depend upon whipping it up, putting out controversy, being witty, having a pop at groups, you know, not really doing proper research journalism. And if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And if you go over the line in doing that, you suffer the punishment. And the consequences in this case are perfectly reasonable, because what he said was not. A couple of quick texts, Ivan, says Mary. Remuneration should be performance-based on clear key performance indicators. It should not be based on gender, as this undermines women. And others, someone said mischievously, everyone's going on about Dobbo and Sharon's pay. Why are people not talking about Miriam and David on <laughs> prime time? Interesting question, Mr Mulvey. Go look at that. My panel today is Pete Lunn, uh, Nicola Byrne and David Davenpower. Next up, we're going to find out what they made of Leo in Belfast. Let's just focus on where we're at now with Leo's visit to the north. Uh, what stance he and Coveney are taking vis-a-vis Brexit, a barrier around the island, or maybe lecturing the Brexiteers to come up with solutions. Let's take a listen to Leo speaking at Queen's University on Friday. Just last July, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson MP, who I'll have a chance to meet later on, joined us in the Irish Embassy in Britain to pay tribute to a great Irish parliamentarian, Willie Redmond MP. He, as you know, was killed in the fighting at Messine. And over the years, he's liked to quote a line from one of Willie's letters, and it's one that has really resonated with me. It was a letter to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And Willie Redmond wrote this shortly before he died. And he wrote, and I quote, it would be a fine memorial to the men who've died if we could, over their graves, build up a bridge between North and South. And I believe we should all honour his words today, at a time when Brexit threatens to drive a wedge between North and South, between Britain and Ireland, we need to build more bridges and fewer borders. Uh, Pete Lunn, what did you make of Leo's comments? Because, um, let's face it, uh, both him and Simon Coveney haven't been afraid to say things that almost deliberately will antagonise the DUP, which are in a pivotal uh, position in Westminster. Um, I don't think London, you know, government could have been impressed by the fact that he said that after 14 months they produced zero detail. And I don't think the people in Brussels would have been impressed. It does denote a change of line which was sort of quiet, charm offensive by Ender Kenny. What do you think Leo's really at here? Well, I think... I think he's doing what has made his political career what it is in many ways, which is saying things other people aren't prepared to and being quite honest and direct, which is, in many ways, I think his trademark, actually. I mean, we're listening to him in the clip there being rather careful and rather diplomatic, but we know that much of his political success has actually been down to being quite forthright. And interestingly, what I think his, this trip to the North shows is that he's taking that same approach to that issue. Now, that I find very interesting. I mean, I cut my journalistic teeth up in the North. I was there when the Good Friday agreement was signed as part of the BBC team when if my arithmetic is correct Leo Varadkar was a teenager um, and historically 
that approach has not played well up there. Being blunt is not a way to go about Northern Ireland politics, historically speaking. And I think there's a sort of litany that shows that. And actually, it's the behind-the-scenes negotiators who get to know everyone and, you know, get some trust going that have been traditionally successful. But, but, you know, that's 20 years ago. And maybe the world has changed. And maybe bringing Northern Ireland into a sort of more modern political debate might actually work. I really, really don't know. I couldn't tell you. But what I think is interesting is he's gone up there and he appears to me to have treated it like he treats pretty much any other political issue, which means there's a degree of directness about what he does, well, he which was many saying people directly, find refreshing. He was saying directly the Brexiteers have no credibility when it comes to the 310 miles of the border. They have no solution, be it electronic or otherwise. Is he right in that? Well, I certainly haven't read a solution, Ivan, so it's hard to disagree with him. And that's one of the reasons why people respect him, because he says things that some people might not be prepared to say, but that often are perceived as truths. Incidentally, I want to disagree with you about whether Brussels would have been pleased with what he said. I don't think Brussels has a problem with what he says at all. I mean, all this stuff is doing, I think, is weakening the British negotiating position because they're becoming less and less credible. And what this has to be put in the context of is there is a mighty fight going on in the Cabinet in London, which is dictating an awful lot of the mess that this is. And, you know, I think all that's happening there is the British negotiating position is getting weaker, which probably makes probably, and it's a big high wire act, but probably makes a slower transition more likely which might be in our favour. As you know, Ivan, uh, during the week the BBC commissioned a very interesting poll, or highlighted a very interesting poll, which showed that the people uh, in the general election, the primary, uh, their primary preoccupation was not wages or equality, it was Brexit and that's the basis on which they voted and of course as we know there was a, a startling drift away from the Tory party and the head Brexiteer Theresa May so there does seem to be a, a, a little bit of buyer's remorse creeping in there and in today's Sunday Telegraph I read that a figure of 36 billion is for the first time being mooted as the price tag for uh, the UK exiting the EU so there's a sign they're prepared to pay well, it's, it's as opposed a, to fifty-eight or plus. Yeah. So, is that a sign that reality is dawning? That you know we have to get down to hard tax? I don't know. I think Leo was absolutely right. But for me, uh, uh, echoing what Peter has just said, there the most striking part of his speech was early on when he said. I was born in 1979, he says, I have a very limited recollection of the Troubles. Now, he is the first Taoiseach that, whose uh, attitude towards Northern Ireland is not framed by what happened during that dreadful period. And I think that that's what's going to uh, animate his attitude towards uh, the DUP. I think he doesn't have that kind of baggage. And I think that kind of plain talking, I don't entirely agree with Pete. Uh, in the past, uh, it, it certainly didn't work. But I think that, that uh, in the current context with a new generation of DUP leaders, I think perhaps it might uh, set them back a bit and make them think about where they're going with Brexit. Uh, it's it, it's it really an astonishing situation that uh, an economy that's so dependent uh, on the EU, such as Northern Ireland's, is, is walking over the cliff in this way. And I think that uh, yeah, I that's, that's something that uh, Leo was reflecting. Um, you're president of the Irish Exporters Association. Um, what was your take on it? And also, I mean, Simon Coveney saying we'll, we'll, we'll keep the border, the land border, but we'll create the Arceus border. We have eight times more trade east-west than we have north-west. What's your sense of the direction in which we're taking nor, nor, the north-south? What, 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 what's your, your sense of it, Nicola? I was up at the McGill Summer School um, and I was up just listening. And it was really interesting because I sat with one of the north's leading Brexiteers, uh, DUP politician. And he asked me, are we joining him in Brexit? And I sat down to explain him what Irish exports actually looks like. Mm. And I explained to him that 82% of our exports are from foreign direct investment companies, which means 18% are from Irish-owned companies. And I explained to him within that, that services outstrips food in our exports. And he didn't understand that. He was so shocked. And I said, why would we leave? What kind of idiot are you? Do you not understand what the Republic trades as? Do you understand what we're made up of? And I realised it's not just him. I think I was actually thinking of asking Peter and the CSO to come together with the Irish exporters and run a factual information day to what exports are. Out of Northern Ireland, the biggest export is scrap metal. That's their biggest export. They don't export. And in fact, the second thing that comes out of there is Lendimplex, which is really interesting because it's an Irish registered company that happened to put a premises up north. And so it's a fascinating look at their own economy. They don't understand it. And in this break, Brexit bit, the exports were winning. 
in Brexit land is services. Yeah, and services are invisible. You can't touch them, you can't ship them, you can't, you can't understand how frustrating this is when you're talking about farming and it's 2% of our total GDP. Yes, in the border region, we're talking about farming. And yes, I absolutely want to protect Irish jobs, the Irish exporters. We, want, we don't want to lose any jobs, we just want to gain them. But for people to be talking about the economy as if, you know, 40% of our exports are this or 40% of that, it's the ignorance of understanding of the complexity of this wonderful <coughs> nation that we've created. And I get more and more mad. So I'm having a fact day and I'm going out to tell everybody, politicians and journalists, so that they can correct the politicians when they start off in these mad concepts. OK, what Leo said specifically was... <clears throat> London, blank page. But there are three possible trade solutions. An EU-UK customs union similar to that to EU-Turkey, one. Two, UK ultimately rejoining the European Free Trade Association. We'll call that the Norway solution. Or C, a possible transition period while these problems are resolved. Which one do you favour? None. Because he's mad. He's as mad as the Brexiteers coming up saying, we're going to get this, we're going to get that. This is a negotiation of 26 very complex countries with one. There's not even an exit strategy. There's no picking what you want next. It's not like a box of chocolates. Let's open and decide what colour it's going to be today. This is diplomacy at its finest. There's real people at the end of this inflation. The UK have just seen a 12.5% pay rise in their gas. There are real people at the bottom of these negotiations. This isn't a game that you can just pick the best option. This is a no, really... Sorry, sorry, but you there's don't going to be an end game, which will be one not. of those three, or no, no Brexit. No, there but may it, not be an end in, on those three. We haven't that, even got a Brexit. In that end game, one of the key factors will be the free movement of people across the EU. Uh, as things stand, uh, the UK says, no way, we want to limit uh, immigration into our country. That is not going to be acceptable to the EU, particularly uh, the eastern uh, uh, countries. Uh, so there's a sticking point that isn't mentioned in the three rather rather lame options that uh, Leo put forward. I wonder why are they lame? I wonder was he a bit stung by the by, by, by the reaction to his earlier démarche on Friday when he said it's not for me to put forward solutions it's for the Brexiteers and then he comes up with these three slightly top of the head solutions uh, I mean you know EU UK Customs Union like Turkey EFTA like Norway yeah, are, your, they're, they're, but surely this is a statement of fact I mean like, no. sorry no sorry I take your point if it, Brexit is completely a U-turn and doesn't happen but at the end of the day Nicola it's, it strikes me as strange it is going but, to be but, one of those three but it may not be May there may that. be more creative solutions. Why are you actually assuming people are... Politics always follows uh, the people second. So politics rarely leads. It normally follows. In Europe, and particularly up north, we trade like it's an all-island. We Even with borders or no borders in the EU, we've stopped seeing borders. We've stopped, On the ground, what happens? Politics and laws are always slow to follow. It may not end up any of these. Politics might actually catch up in Europe and decide, you know something... People are doing this anyway. Why would we put barriers in front of them? And there may be creative solutions. Like For the very simple reason that Brussels will say, hold on a minute, Italy, Hungary and everyone else will leave if you get the same privileges for being no, no. outside the Sorry. Union as inside but, but the Union. But they're not getting anything yet. We haven't got that far. So right now, picking out, you know, out of the box solutions with but fair edges and boundaries. Barnier and all these people have made it Juncker have made it absolutely clear Britain cannot keep their There's privileges if they're gone. Sorry, two different points. One, they haven't left. And two, the solution you're proposing for them hasn't begun to be negotiated. It's much more complex. Life in the UK, you know, you're seeing German people writing saying, I've been living here for 26 years and I don't qualify for a visa. I'm going to be kicked out of this country. What am I going to do? So there's a huge amount of other layers of complexity in this in people's lives that hasn't even come to negotiating table. Trade is only one of the many complicating factors in all this. And I really wish that Britain are, are guilty of it too. They keep having conversations about what we want, what we're going to do, what we're going to dictate. None of those things may be an offer that they're choosing. At the end of this, we want to end up with trade, we want to end up with free travel between all our countries and we want to end up at peace and not enemies at the end of this. If we well, keep going and saying you've only got a choice of A, B or C and you're dictating, yeah. it's as bad as them saying well, okay. we're not well, going to well, have ECJ. Pete, I'm listening to all that with some incredulity from this point of view. <laughs> Michael O'Leary sat where you were and he says, very simple, on March 2019, unless Britain accepts the European Court of Justice rulings, the, the, the blue, <laughs> European blue skies will not operate over the air of Britain, right? Simple as. So, actually... 
Leo put forward a proposal there that there would be some tribunal system that would be a quasi-ECJ solution. Surely this is where reality is going to emerge. Yeah, I, I fully take the point. If opinion shifts in Britain to the point that they become like they did in the general election. Hold on a minute here. Brexit isn't such a good idea. But on the basis that unlike Y2K, it does go ahead and it is calamitous, we've got to focus on end games, surely. I think there's a lot of points been made here. I mean, I agree with much of Nicola's frustration. But I mean, I certainly wouldn't lay any of this at Leo Varadkar's door. He's trying to move the debate on. I don't think he was saying he favours one of these three as the, the end game necessarily. He's just actually putting them out there and saying, come on, guys, you've got to get real about this. And you've got to actually say, you know, what is the thing you're aiming for? And the problem is here, what we're all trying to do is influence the argument that's happening in London. That's what's going on. The Europeans are trying to do it. Ireland is trying to do it. The DUP are trying to do it. Everyone is trying to influence the argument that's happening in London, because ultimately, which way London goes is what's going to dictate how much of an absolute dog's breakfast this turns out to be and it could be awful i mean i'd even add to nicola's point actually that it's not just about the composition of exports it's supply chains as well i mean some of our most high-tech goods go in and out of the uk multiple times during their supply chain and if we get this i I saw the o'leary story too and thought it was really interesting because what it tells you is that sector by sector there are technical issues that if we get wrong as nicola says will be real people at the bottom of it who are going to get clobbered by unforeseen consequences that the negotiators didn't take into account because what they are trying to negotiate is so technical and complex. Now, my view about that would be that arguably, the more technical you make the debate and the slower it takes place, if they are going to leave, probably the better because then you work more of those technical details out, right? But Advancing the debate I don't think causes necessarily a problem by suggesting end games. None of the end games that have been suggested are trouble-free. They all cause awful technical problems. So an awful lot of this is about who's going to negotiate it, over what time scale, and what conditions are going to be placed upon it. There's one tangent about Leo that I want to ask you about, David, because um, I would regard it myself, and I could be quite wrong at this, that I was considered to be quite visceral against Ender Kenny, whether that's right or not. But you and Stephen Collins were seen to be kind of a little bit more give Enda Kenny a fair hearing and a bit more sympathetic to him than a lot of commentators were in terms of comparing him to Leo. Um, could I put it to you that with Leo you feel there's something going on between the two ears, that he can talk spontaneously, he'd, you know, he's comfortable in the media, and from a media perspective alone, that's a big step up? Of course it's a step up. I mean, no, nothing succeeds like a successor, uh, Ivan, and I don't know what you had against poor Ender. No, I had nothing against Oh, him. you no, say no, that, no. you say that, I don't know, <laughs> I don't, there's something there. But at any rate, uh, Leo is a fresh voice. Uh, he Are you impressed, is a word? Uh, I, I'm, uh, it's too early, too early to say, as the... Uh, the Chinese well, said about the, the French start. Revolution. Uh, do, do you think um, he's all spinning no substance? We have to wait and see. Uh, I, I think he's made a good start. Uh, I think he's going to kind of think himself into the role over the summer. He hasn't actually said or done very much since he was elected, uh, but he is a fresh face. And I'll tell you this much, he certainly resonates with the younger generation, with my kids. They're a lot more interested in Leo than they were in Enda, and that's a good start. And what do all of you make of this lead story that we might have a snap election? Uh, I think if he makes the same mistake as Theresa May, running into snap elections is a bad idea. If the economy is going well and we're in the middle of Brexit negotiations, why rock the boat? He'd want well, a good he, pretext. He shouldn't call so it. An, election, he an election next spring is scarcely a snap election, Ivan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but he doesn't have a majority. Like, if he wants to achieve anything, but he well, needs... There's no point. The situation is immensely frustrating. There's nothing going on politically because the arrangement is really dysfunctional. There's no two ways about it. And, of course, Leo, of all uh, the Fine Gael ministers, was the most sceptical about going into this deal. So he's no lover of the so-called new politics. There's really no politics. So he would be temperamentally, I think, uh, not averse to having an election. But there's no doubt, talking to people close to him, uh, that the Theresa May election has coloured people's thinking in government. They don't want to make the same mistake that she did. Uh, Leo, a big improvement on Enda, Peter? Oh, you know damn well, Ivan, I couldn't possibly comment on that, which is why you've asked it to me. But what I will, <laughs> what I will say is I was very interested. What, do the ESRI Don't have a position on this? <laughs> <laughs> I'll answer that for you. No. <laughs> yes, Ivan, there should be more and better research. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, one of the things I would pick up, though, which I think is really interesting and has also resonated among younger people I know, and I want to pick up on a point that David's just made. The fact that Leo went to the Pride 
celebrations in Belfast and said what he said, I think is really interesting, actually, because he doesn't have a history of being a campaigner in the area at all. I mean, in fact, sure, he came out at the time of the same-sex marriage referendum here, but he's not campaigned on the issue and been big on it. But it was interesting. The first day he took office, he made real points about diversity and equality, and he's gone up to Belfast and done it again. And I think that's quite interesting. For me, that's a kind of early indication that placing himself firmly and very firmly, in fact, in the social liberal camp might be part of what he's going to do. My panel is Pete Lund, David Devon-Power and Nicola Byrne. Some of your texts on what we were discussing. Great to hear David Devon-Power on the airwaves again. Sensible, informing, professional. Don't slip into full retirement, says Niall to David. And uh, lots more, but just one I want to take. The consensus seems to have been that Sharon Neviolan should get the same pay as Brian Dobson. Is age, time of service and therefore experience not an obvious factor? A lot of divided views on that. Uh, I wanted to come to you, Nicola, in relation to this lead story of the Sunday Times because your your day-to-day business activity is right in this area of social media, uh, protecting people's reputations uh, and refuting allegations. Gardaí threaten arrest for online posts during trial. And it not only refers to Twitter and Facebook following the Jobstown trial, but another case uh, that someone has been, shall we say, concurrently uh, tweeting about and may have a vested interest in it. Um, The Chief Justice, uh, Susan Denham, retiring, has said that the law should be changed to prohibit uh, this. What do you think? Totally agree. That the internet, so we, just to explain, we basically read every single post. Now I say read, physically read every this single post. This is Cloud90. Cloud90. We physically read every single post. So for the last four and a half years, for most of the big businesses in the state, we have read every single post to them, from them and about them. And none of it's good. In terms of, you know, people use it for a social media channel to do customer service. That's fair enough. And then their normal customer service problems. But then other people who are quite influential decide, you know, the bank shares aren't going the way they want or they make an accusation about, you know, somebody who's sick within the business and the share price. But it's not a, it's a cruel comment or it's a vicious comment and it goes unchallenged and it just becomes part of the normal conversation. And there's two, the generation thing with Leah was very interesting because in my world, I take my information from a huge amount of sources. But if you're under 40, you only take your information from the Internet and most of it's complete and utter rubbish or fake or not real or an unedited opinion. So when you write for the newspapers, you rightly said earlier, everything is read, double checked, facts are checked and the news goes out having been qualified. Social media has no qualification. Donald Trump is a perfect example of this. He can basically lie all he wants and say what he wants. And you can never check it because it just becomes so much information coming at you so fast. You couldn't stay on top of it. And if you like somebody, you're emotionally attached to them. And what has happened in the Internet world is people think just because they tweet it and they have an opinion, they're right. And that becomes fact. And that fact damages, hurts, um, emotionally upsets people, sends people into depression. There's real consequences. And now we see influencing juries and trials because they're only human too. So what should be done to control social media in your view? Well, we should definitely apply the laws of on uh, paper media straight libel. on. Libel. straight on. To the, now, it is there. Like, the laws do apply, well, but sorry, no one sorry, polices the, it because of the volume. The person posting the libel, are they as culpable as the anonymous person no. making the tweet? No, because they come into court with the defence of we've one billion tweets a day, we can't possibly police it, Your Honour. And, uh, and therefore make themselves not culpable. So, um, so, so given that might have some practical validity... Uh, well, it's not practical because newspapers have one million readers and they have the same argument um, that, you know, you can't just publish online. So we're not doing enough and we're not doing enough in the interest of people's health, uh, mental health. It's really serious. We're not doing enough in terms of we're almost excusing it because of the benefits. You know, well, I found out about that and I wouldn't have known. I was like, well, did you need to know? Mm -hmm. You're involved in everything all the time. What I find is that everybody's an expert. And when I see the stuff that's happened with Kevin this week in the nutty world social media, people think they're important and they do drive public sentiment. Like how many pages on Sunday went to this? Now, even if I didn't know Kevin, I'd have written that issue off as I'm too busy. I don't care. In my real world, you know, there's dogs and cats and there's Mm -hmm. kids and there's work and there's... Life goes on, but these people are now finding full-time careers in the negative and it has to be policed. Surely, Pete, this is all harmless nonsense. I mean, if people <coughs> if people go on some blog and say, that, whatever, Ivan Yates, I don't, I don't bother with it. It doesn't cost me a thought. It's no different to being a TD and saying, sure, he was never any good. You know what I mean? Like, it's just you develop a skin like a rhinoceros if you're in the public eye. Surely this is, we shouldn't be getting too upset about it. It's all anonymous n- nonsense. Uh, two points. One, no. Uh, 
Uh, I don't agree with that. And the reason I don't agree with that is because what's said on social media is influencing things and changing things. Um, there's no question it had an influence on the US election. Whether it tipped it or not is a matter that researchers are currently debating. Some think it did and some think it didn't. But it certainly had an influence. An awful lot of what was written in social media that had an influence was false. But it had an influence. So it is affecting our democracy. It also affects organisations. It affects businesses. I mean, I'm not going to give you details here because I can't. But I mean, I've got on the end of a social media campaign which was involving lots of non-truths that is extremely difficult to fight. Because how can you? Because the tools aren't there. Now, one of the problems is, this is the second point I'm going to make to you, this is is extremely difficult. What social media does is elevate pub chat to the status of a newspaper column. We end up with laws that are designed for edited newspaper pieces being applied to what somebody can bash out on a mobile phone in a small number of characters when they've had too much to drink late at night. I mean, in the hands of academics, social media is nothing short of a gun pointed loaded firmly at their foot. Right? There's a real problem here, and our laws aren't up to it. And one of the reasons for this is that the media, for about the best part of 200 years has been regulated quite strongly. And the reason is because you can, because the medium can be regulated. It's a physical thing that you can actually say there's an amount of spectrum. There is a publication of Whereas, record. There is a publication of record in the library. Whereas social media, you simply can't do that because the volume of it is far too great and it spreads through a network rather than through some kind of linear publication. We have no idea how to deal with this, but what's troubling to me is that now if people want to use it in a very unpleasant and effective way or in a way that undermines democracy, actually they can and we don't yet know what to do about it. You say it's, you suggest it's harmless online banter. I'll tell you a story about it. No, no it's nasty. <laughs> and, and all that. Well, and the point is, if you're in it's public well, life, you've got to roll with the let, punches. Well, let me tell you a story. There's a, 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 a female TD uh, that I know uh, that was subjected to an online campaign because of a particular piece of legislation she was putting through. She felt she could identify one of the people uh, that was tar- targeting her, uh, and she felt that one of his, uh, his posts uh, amounted to a threat to harm her. Uh, she went to the guards. The guards said, yeah, we'll certainly talk to this individual, but you have to talk to the social media company as well. Uh, headquartered in Dublin, she went to, the, to, to see these, uh, the, the, this company. Uh, they said, well, you just got to... They, they took the Ivan Yates approach, you know. You just got to roll with the punches. That's the way it is. You're in the public eye, even though... This they person, took no responsibility for taking it, it, it offline? Absolutely or? none. Absolutely none. They said, you're in the public eye. She said, this man is threatening to harm me. Uh, You have a responsibility. And the line was, as Nicola suggests, we're just a platform. We're an inert platform, albeit one making a great deal of money. But we're just a platform. Uh, This is your day job. What protection, if that TD went to you, what could you do to help Well, we're now involved in RiskEye. And RiskEye would actually get it down. We'd actually go to the platform knowing the rules and using everything we've learned to actually ensure that came down. And there is laws. But the problem is, it's so complex to know what the rules of their website is, what the law is, and then you've got to be so specific. It's like a proper legal area now. And so it does come down. Like, we can genuinely get an awful lot down now. We're watching a huge amount of harm being removed off the internet. Everything from fake reviews, like last week we had a, um, an insurance broker and uh, it was really interesting. He had a fake review, gone to Google, and sorry, Google, he, he asked to take it down off Google. Google said no, so he decided to write an even worse answer to that, uh, dropped his own review ratings and then harmed his business because his reviews had dropped so considerably because he wasn't a five-star business anymore. Well, we actually helped him. And in fairness, he did the work, but we helped him, and it went. F- finally, Peter, I want to come to you about a completely separate story. There are, Mail on Sunday has a lead story, Drugs Firm Secret, 4.2 million to doctors. But there are other stories in relation to the big pharma companies and clinical trials they're carrying out. You, you think there's a story here? Absolutely. Susan Mitchell, the health correspondent in the Sunday Business Post, has picked this up. There was a British Medical Journal research study that was done on how the drugs companies are complying with the the rules and the regulations on publishing clinical trials. This is one of these stories that gets very, very little attention and is massively important. And the reason it's massively important is one of the things that makes you either happy or sad, Ivan, even you, is your health. Right? That's what really, really matters to you. And if you're taking drugs that are ineffective, it makes a huge difference compared to taking drugs that are effective. We know that. That's the wonders of modern medicine. But the science behind the production of our drugs has been lacking for some time. And there's a real campaign to try and do something about it now. And that's what this British Medical Journal is about. It's about trying to make sure that 
trials are registered, carried out and published in a transparent way so we can actually see which drugs work the best rather than companies making profits on drugs that don't work very well. And there's a huge historical legacy problem here. So I was pleased to see it picked up. It's an important issue. It's a bit of a technical issue, not a hugely technical issue. But for every single one of us, it will end up mattering because what it does is it ultimately dictates how good is the science behind what you start to put into yourself as you get older and want to prolong your life and stay happy. (laughs) What about the placebo effect? If I believe... Should I take the, their, what do you think those tablets, they're not vitamin ones, the Echenia tablets, and I was convinced that I would stop, because in the morning I wouldn't get a cold or a flu, and I was convinced yeah. until the doctor came and said it makes absolutely no effect on uh, Ivan, the placebo effect is real. Funnily enough, it works better for some personalities than others. What type of personality is it believes in placebos? I want both. I want the placebo effect and I want the damn thing to work. Okay. And if the company makes a profit at the end of it, that's fine if it works. Okay. Just across your entire career, David, do you think we live in a more transparent society now? Uh, I I think there is a superficial transparency. Uh, I think that uh, obviously there's the Freedom of Information Act where you, uh, uh, journalists are able to uncover um, the correspondence that isn't put on a post-it and thrown in the bin at the end of the week. Uh, but I, I, I think that there, uh, society in general has become uh, more um, silo-based. But in a globalised society, is is there a no, kind of big brother thing? Is there a kind of big industry thing that's actually pulling the wool over our eyes? Uh, well, well, I answer your question. I, do, I don't actually think that society has become more transparent. I think there are more powerful vested interests now than there were uh, 40 years ago conspiring to make sure that we don't uh, we, we don't know things like Pete's example of the uh, of the drug tests that don't reflect well in the company being suppressed. A final word to you, Nicola, what do you think? I think there's too much data coming at too many people who are trying to run really busy lives and I think the technology has allowed people to get lost in the idea that they have control and therefore are doing more for themselves and things we would have outsourced, we're not outsourcing anymore. I think because you do so much for yourself and booking your own flights instead of going to your travel agent all the way through the spectrum that you and you're so busy looking at Facebook and wondering what everyone else's life is like that I actually think more data, less interpretation, less history, less knowledge, you know, the British, I realised after just walking around Gloucestershire, were overrun by the Romans, then the Normans, then the Anglo-Saxons, and eventually... Don't you care? And, no, you do care because <laughs> history just keeps repeating itself. And what's fascinating is I never saw all this. So I know less, and the less I know, the more I know, the even more less I know. And history just repeats itself. And on the final word, I think the age of our Taoiseach is usually important because... I'm 10 years older than him again and I think it's absolutely fascinating that every 10 years the perspective changed and I think it's good for the country. We'll give you the last word. Nicola Byrne, who amongst Cloud90 and all the other stuff is President of the Irish Exporters Association, Pete Lunn of the ESR, I think he'll hold his job after today, and former political <laughs> correspondent and northern editor and lots more things and we're awaiting the next chapter after RT David Davenpower. They have been my panellists today. Thank you very much for coming in on this Bank Holiday weekend. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.